Hey guys, and welcome to the Abundance Alchemist podcast. I'm Caitlin Dorsey, an Abundance Alchemist, animal lover, trauma survivor to thriver, mindset expert, self-love junkie, and author. This is the place to be to grab those powerful tools, ideas, and inspiration to make lasting changes in yourself and your life. No more waiting, my friends, because it's time to show up unapologetically, radiate that confidence, and create a life you absolutely love. Time to buckle up and dive on in. Hello, my high-vibing friends. I am so excited that you are here today on the Abundance Alchemist podcast. I have an amazing guest to introduce you to. Um, So today we have Barbara Legere. Um, She's the author of Kevin's Choice, A Mother's Journey Through Her Son's Mental Illness, Addiction, and Suicide, and co-author of the best-selling book, The Epiphanies Project. As an advocate for those suffering for substance use disorder, mental health issues, and grief, she has been featured in Salon and the Huffington Post. Legere lives in Southern California with her sister, Therese, as well as her cats, Tortoise, and two dogs. So welcome, Barbara. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Um, When I read kind of your um, profile and what led me to you is obviously this topic of mental health, substance abuse, and suicide is very um, dear to my heart as well. That's kind of my background as a counselor and also some of my personal journey. So um, I'm glad that you're advocating and willing to share about it, but I'll just kind of um, ask you to start with where you want to as far as part of that journey. Okay. Um, I'll just share a little bit about how I came to be where I am right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a single mom. I have a, I had one child, Kevin, and when he was about 15, he started using drugs. He'd suffered with depression and anxiety uh, since he was about nine. And so when he discovered drugs, um, they helped him more than like an antidepressant would. Mm. He thought he'd hit the jackpot, that he had the answer to all his questions. So by the time he was 17, he was um, he was a very serious, hardcore heroin addict. Mm. I was even told by a judge once that if she let him out of jail, he would probably die because I, I said, please let him out of jail. And she said, no, he, he will. He will probably die. Mm. So that went on for about 12 years. Um, I got to know a lot about addiction and recovery. I got to meet a lot of his friends and became close to them. And I could see what was going on in their hearts and how hard this was for them. And I just grew to love these people so much and understand their struggle and see the stigma against it and what they were up against in society just broke my heart. But um, Kevin eventually on August 11th, 2020, chose to take his life. Mm. So at that moment, my life changed and I decided, I mean, I decided at that moment, but I decided I have nothing left to do except hopefully help other people. That's all I really want to do. If in any way I can, if it's to comfort them, encourage them, educate them, advocate for them, um, that's all I have left. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm very sorry for your loss. Um, I think it's a tough conversation to have. And I know this is a pretty different episode for our listeners. um, But I think that addiction and mental health and um, really suicide is becoming a lot more prevalent, especially in today's society. And I think during COVID, we 
man, we did not hear about what was happening, but um, the aftermath of really seeing, you know, it, especially working in this field um, is tragic. And I think too, we kind of just push this idea of, you know, um, this opioid epidemic that we're having, like we just kind of pushed it aside because it was like, oh, now we have, you know, the national pandemic. And so that's not as important. Um, and unfortunately that has become more real than ever. There are, um, I just saw recently that Colorado became the number one um, state for fentanyl overdoses. Um, And so, you know, this is becoming a problem more and more, which is why I really wanted to have you on and hear kind of your journey as well as kind of chat with you about this unfortunate reality, but um, provide some education about what this is really about. Oh, thank you. 46,000 people took their own lives in 2020, 46,000. And that was during COVID. And um, yeah, it's just, it's happening more and more instead of less and less. So there's something definitely wrong. And it's something that's not talked about enough. People are um, uncomfortable with that topic, but it's real. And I think it's important to talk about it. And the most important thing to talk about in today's society is fentanyl. Like you just Mm -hmm. mentioned, I beg parents to educate their children and to never think that it won't happen in their family to their child. Um, Your child may be super smart. They may know you may have told them a hundred times, but there's that teen age where you think it won't happen to me. I know what I'm doing, but you can't do that anymore. I mean, I grew up experimenting, but it wasn't a life or death matter. And now it is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I was actually just at an event in uh, Denver with the Denver district attorney, and she shared that um, they just did a research study in Denver um, where they took 160 controlled substances um, and drugs off the street and tested them to see what was in them. 160 of the 160 substances had fentanyl in them. So this is a really huge topic when you're saying that that is, is, yeah. And, you know, I work in, I've been in working in residential treatment facilities. I have seen um, how fentanyl interacts with people. And unfortunately, it's also one of those substances where people go, you know, go into treatment, they've been using a certain amount and the tolerance decreases so much that they go back out and use the same and it's an immediate overdose. Absolutely. That used to happen with heroin, Mm -hmm. but with fentanyl, it's, you know, 10 times more likely to happen. Yeah. It's insane. And I, when I think about heroin too, this is just kind of like an interesting tidbit. Um, Heroin actually, like a lot of people don't know this, but buyers, the company that created aspirin actually created heroin and they created heroin as a substance that they were selling and they promoted it as a non-addictive alternative to pain. So there is actually ads going back. I think it was in like the 1930s or something around that 1930 to 1950, somewhere in that where you can see ads by buyers and it actually it's called heroin and it is heroin. So, you know, we're kind of thinking, too, that these big pharmaceutical companies don't know or are not creating what they're actually creating, just like fentanyl is created, just like. Uh, carfentanil and um, morphine and all these things that we're really seeing as well as suboxone, since that's another one that's becoming really popular um, on the streets is causing a lot more concern. So, um, 
you know, I think this is where the conversation really starts to become about harm reduction. And I'm curious kind of what your views about harm reduction are. I am 100% for harm reduction in any and every form possible. Um, Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm also for medically assisted treatment, which to me is a form of harm reduction. And the the fact is people are going to keep using until they're ready to stop or until they're stopped by death. Right. So to provide them safe ways to use, like for example, um, clean needles, yep. um, syringe exchanges. We had one in my County and it got shut down. I'm like, why did you shut mm-hmm. that down? It was saving people. It was, you know, my son had sepsis. He had, all these horrifying things happened to him. He almost lost a leg due to using dirty needles. Mm-hmm. So I started buying my own son clean needles because I knew he was not going to stop. And, you know, I share that in my book. And it's very controversial to some of my friends who are also um, parents of people that are using heroin. But um, that is really important to me. Every Anything we can do to educate and to make it safer for these people. Fentanyl testing strips, I think they should be handed out everywhere. Just hand them out to everyone Mm -hmm. because that is going to save a lot of lives, a lot of lives. Yeah. I want to touch on that piece about you buying your son clean needles. Um, I want to say like, thank you. That's, it's amazing. As a mom, that is extremely challenging, right? But you hit on the topic of truth, right? That this is not people that are terrible people. This is not people that we can turn a blind eye on for society. This is real people. This is your son. This is like, so as a mom, I can't even like fathom how challenging that would be. But also you took a step to realize the reality of substance abuse and realize that it is not this idea that society still looks at this as like a moral dilemma. We look at it from the moral model, right? We look at it like they're choosing to be a bad person and to use when really even going back to the medical model, how the medical treatment responds that this is a brain disease. This is a chemical dependency that goes on it, right? And we have the research that backs that up. So doing things that are really controversial, like clean needle exchanges, like medication-assisted treatment or therapy, like you were talking about, um, that is something that gets really pushed to the side and frowned upon. But when we can see this with our family members, we can see why it's important. Yeah. And educating yourself is the most important thing. I mean, the first time I found a syringe that my son had used, I freaked out, threw it away, yelled and screamed. Well, that didn't get me very far. I realized as that he, when he was not going to stop, I needed to learn everything I could. And so I did. And um, it's not hard to learn about it because there's so much information online and different sources and resources out there, like people like you that know a lot about it. But um, yeah, it it is looked down upon still to this day. And that's a tragedy because it happens to people in all walks of life. The most sweet, precious people you've ever met, it Mm -hmm. happens to. So it does. Yeah. I think, you know, that stigma is 
very present and very um, challenging because it, like you said, there are 46,000 people in 2020 that took their lives. That is a daunting number. And even to think about like, maybe all those people didn't, you know, struggle with substances, but they struggled. And so this is like, you know, when we're looking at COVID and this national pandemic, this is part of a pandemic. This is an epidemic. The mental health of society and the substance use that's occurring and the substances that are becoming to um, the streets. I saw something not even that long ago about the county that I live in. They posted through the Denver for the police department. Um, I think it was like a reposted from Denver police department was that there is a new substance that is actually more potent than car fentanyl going around. So for our listeners that don't understand the power of fentanyl and um, car fentanyl, um, we'll talk about a little bit of the specifics. So morphine is given in hospitals, right? We know that's a pain um, reducer. Fentanyl is also given in hospitals. I will share that when I just had my baby of five months, my um, the only pain medication that I was offered was fentanyl. And that is absurd to me. Um, And I did not do that because just so, and there's no judgment, like whatever people choose to do here, but educating is a piece that we're coming for. So um, fentanyl is, I believe, 100 times more potent than morphine. Mm -hmm. And then carfentanil is even more potent than that. So we don't even know the dosages from fentanyl and carfentanil that can cause overdoses. We don't even know the lethal dose of that. And, you know, I think we put this like negative um, stigma more on like methamphetamine and heroin because they are looked at as like dirty street drugs. Mm -hmm. But fentanyl is what's really causing some problems. So I think that, you know, um, bringing that awareness too and talking about that is really, really important. And I want to take a step back too, because we we mentioned this idea of harm reduction. And so for people, our listeners that don't know what harm reduction is, can you kind of share like what that is? Um, well, harm reduction is doing whatever you can to reduce the harm. I mean, it's it's kind of just what it sounds like. It's providing the clean needles. It's giving pe- people a safe place to use. Um, when person I know started an organization called Never Use Alone. Mm -hmm. And even if you are alone, you can call them and they will stay on the line with you to make sure you don't overdose. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it's needed. Mm -hmm. A lot of people use alone and it's so dangerous because then you don't have a chance. Narcan is part of harm reduction. Narcan is a drug that can be injected or either intravenously or used up the nostril to bring someone back from an overdose. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody needs to carry that too. I mean, (laughs) all the police and the fire departments have them. A lot of people are carrying them now in case they see something. You know, I was at McDonald's once when a guy overdosed in the bathroom Mm -hmm. and I didn't have my um, Narcan on me. And I just was so upset. I mean, he did survive, but I could have helped. And um, those are the kind of things harm reduction is. And I think education is part of harm reduction too. And just having an open mind and seeing things as they are 
rather than the judgments. Like you were saying, I mean, it, it, the old stereotypes have got to end because that's not who's, you know, it's not dirty drugs on the street. It's our children, our coworkers, our spouses, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's very true. I think that that was a beautiful way of putting it. Um, I think that, you know, I saw this crazy statistic and I can't remember exactly what it is, so I might be butchering it, but it was something alarming. And it was about, it was like 90 to 95%. It was somewhere in there um, of men 55 and older that were in the top 1% were opiate users. Wow. And so, like you said, this is not just people that we can turn a blind eye because they're living on the streets. This is people functioning at very high levels, impacting our society and our decisions. So I want to say that. And then also, um, I absolutely love that you brought up Narcan. I have Narcan in my car and I carry Narcan because um, it can save a life. And there is this piece about um, Colorado actually just passed a law um, with a standing prescription that anybody can go into a pharmacy and ask for Narcan. And just a little education around Narcan too, which I'm sure you can um, jump into, but the Narcan, if you give someone Narcan, it is not a drug that binds to the opiate receptor and stimulates it. It actually blocks it. So you are not giving somebody a clean high. You are blocking the high that somebody took. Also, you can give someone Narcan repeatedly, and there are no studies that show that that is harmful. You cannot cause someone to overdose by giving them Narcan. Exactly. And Narcan, you are covered by the Good Samaritan law if you give somebody Narcan. So if you give someone Narcan and you save their life, I'm going to be honest, they're probably going to be a little pissed because it's not going to feel good when they wake up, right? It is not. But you save the life (laughs) (laughs) and you are covered legally by the Good Samaritan law. So I just want to put that out there too, because there are a lot of major players talking about this. And I know one here is the Colorado Naloxone Project, which is what Narcan is. The drug is called Naloxone um, that are making really big strides. And I don't know where you're based out of, Barbara. Um, California. California. Okay. so behind you. We're not anywhere close to what you guys are doing. I love Colorado. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, we could use more people like you that are advocating, (laughs) um, but other States are making this progress and we're moving towards this idea. But like you said, a lot of the harm reduction piece starts with education, because I think too, that there's this expectation that when somebody does get clean and does like go to treatment for 30 days, that they're cured. And that's a beautiful fantasy, but it sure isn't the reality, right? Um, you know, according to the CDC, it takes, um, or actually it's OBH, the Office of Behavioral Health, it takes 90 days of consistent treatment to even stand a chance for recovery. And that can look like a lot of different things, right? There's a lot of different modalities out there. There's a lot of different, um, community treatments out there, but it's some sort of treatment. Um, and this kind of brings me to this idea too of tough love. I think that a lot of people think that tough love is a good way to try to help a loved one stop. Um, Tell me about that. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think the reason people think that it's a good way to help people stop is because they've heard that over and over and over. I heard that from doctors, nurses, police officers, therapists, 
drug counselors. I heard that from everyone. And the suggestion is always go to Al-Anon and use tough love. Mm. So I did. I finally gave in, even though it didn't feel right to me. And I went to Al-Anon and I, and I tried tough love and there's different definitions of tough love. Um, in the group I was in, it was shut them out. Don't communicate with them. Let them hit their rock bottom. And that's the only time that they're going to realize that they need to take steps to get better. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, rock bottom for an opiate addict is death. And there's no two ways around that. I saw what happened when I put my son out in the streets. It was ridiculous. You know, it was so much worse than when he lived at home. So for me, tough love did not work. It caused more harm than good. I interviewed a lot of people when I wrote my book and asked them, and there are some people that needed it. They mm -hmm. needed their family to turn their back. But the majority, the large majority said they needed love and encouragement to know that there was someone there to help them through the difficult times, um, that they weren't alone. And so that's kind of how I was with my son. I, 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 when he wasn't in jail, prison, or rehab, he was living here yeah. and with me. And I liked it that way. I wanted him to be here. I wanted him to be safe. I, ha I have brought him back with Narcan, and it, they aren't happy. <laughs> they mm -hmm. are very mad at you because mm -hmm. all of a sudden they're not high, and they mm -hmm. feel awful. Right. So, but yeah. That's my that's my theory on tough love. It's I I don't agree with it. I just think that they people need love, support, and encouragement much more than having their family or friends turn their back on them. I agree with that. I think that this idea of tough love is a very old model that has never worked. <laughs> um, I think that. You know, we talk about a lot about the addiction of um, or the addiction. The opposite of addiction is not abstinence. The opposite of addiction is community. It's connection. Right. And so yes. um, there's no reason that people need to try to do this on their own. Right. There are people and places that can help them, but it does start with the family. If there's family support, as hard as it is. Right. We're human. It is frustrating when somebody you can see that they're hurting themselves or that they're putting these substances, but there's more to it. And you're right. When you go to that tough love space and turn your back, it's not going to help. Yeah. It's not going to cause somebody to be like, oh, great. I'm going to get help. Yeah. It, they might initially try, but somebody has to get help for themselves when they feel like they can get help. So um, again, as a mom, like, and hearing you say, like, I brought my son back to my house after you know, jail or rehab, like that's incredible. Um, I want to say too, that I, with the, this idea of, um, of tough love and, you know, like we talked about, like the, how often people or how much treatment people need, there is this, um, idea too, of, relapse becoming or reoccurring use becoming a normal part of recovery. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that is a really good question. And I've actually been thinking about that lately because you always hear relapse is part of recovery. And, you know, I, I don't know what I think of that. 
in some ways, it's like saying, it's okay, you're expected to relapse. Mm-hmm. And that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Relapse is a very dangerous thing because your tolerance level is so down and you're sending yourself back down that same hole that you were in before that's so hard to dig out of. So I don't know. I think that it may be a common occurrence, but I don't think we should say it's part of recovery because that's almost like giving license to it. Mm-hmm. Um I know it happens all the time. And I know that, um, well, I always use this example because um, Philip Seymour Hoffman mm-hmm. stopped using heroin for 25 years and he started using it again and he passed away from it. Mm-hmm. So that I see that happen constantly. People stop using for two years, five years, 10 years, and they still go back. And recovery is something you have to live in the rest of your life. That doesn't mean you have to go to meetings or do anything. It's just you have to be aware the rest of your life that this is part of who you are because it's an illness. It's a disease Mm -hmm. in your chemicals. Yeah. I like that. I like your answer because I think too, um, I agree with you. It can be really dangerous to say that this is a normal part of it because it does happen. But if we are normalizing, like you said, that tolerance piece becomes really dangerous. And so I think, you know, we also have to realize that, um, like you talked about, this is a disease. This is the first step of a relapse is not picking up the substance or the drink. The first part of the relapse is the thought. It is a thought that starts to prepare, to plan the relapse. So this happens a lot before relapse actually occurs. And like you said, you have to be active in your recovery. And you're right. It doesn't mean you have to be going to AA every day. It doesn't mean you have to be going to CODA every day. It doesn't mean like whatever your Dharma recovery, celebrate recovery, whatever your modality is, that's not what it necessarily matters. But it matters if you become complacent because you're right. Those people that haven't used for 25 years, it's like, oh, it's no big deal anymore. No. This is an illness and it does affect people every single day because those thoughts are still there. Addiction is not only a chemical dependency. It is also a brain thought pattern problem, right? There is going to be cravings. There is going to be this reason. And I think too, we address this idea that people use for reason right? It becomes a coping skill. And then I think the biggest part of this is it does not continue use because it's fun. I think that is a big misconception that drives me nuts that people make, right? That, oh, I used uh, heroin one time and I had a really good time. So I'm just going to keep using it because I'm having fun. No, it becomes a physical dependence. I remember I was chatting with a gentleman when I first started getting in this industry. I worked in an involuntary psychiatric unit in Newark, New Jersey. And um, he had come in and um, he was talking with me and he'd been detoxing for a couple of days. And um, he, I asked him, I was, like I said, very new in this field. And I said, why do you use? And I was like, he's like, well, let me tell you this. And he told me his journey of going to five rehabs. And he, when he told me that every single time he walked in the parking lot, he relapsed. And I said, well, why do you keep doing it? And he said, let me tell you it this way. I do it so that I can feel normal to sit here and have a conversation with you. And he goes, you feel normal having a conversation with me. 
I don't feel normal if I'm not using. And I think that really put it into perspective. Exactly. Exactly. And Kevin used to tell me that all the time and his friends. It helps them feel normal. And it is not fun because you, when you need it every day, if you don't get it, the withdrawals are like hell. They are so intense. The pain, the suffering that someone goes through. So that's a motivator too to keep using because you don't want to withdraw. You can do it medically, which helps a lot. But um, yeah, it's it's very difficult. Yeah, and a lot of times Kevin would he went to rehab uh, at least I think twelve times mm-hmm. over twelve years. Yeah, and you know sometimes thirty days, sixty, ninety, whatever. But you know it didn't work for him. Some people would say, oh, well, he didn't work for, he didn't work hard enough. Mm. I don't know. I I think he did. I saw how tormented he was. But even while in there, they start thinking, I'm going to use when I get out. I mean, he told me that so many times. He was planning it before he got out. I'm like, ah, but that's just part of it. It does make them feel normal. Right. And I think too, that you you hit on that point of, you know, I think, when we go back to that idea of a moral model, it's like, well, people can just choose not to do it. Just stop. And it's like, you hit on a huge piece that withdrawal. People do not understand what withdrawal does. And even medical withdrawal, it still sucks. I mean, I have seen people medically withdrawal from fentanyl, from heroin, from meth, all these things. They still are in physical pain, shaking, sweating, vomiting, having diarrhea, like, and not even just that piece. You think about this idea that when somebody is using, they're not processing those emotions. So guess what comes back when you stop using? Oh, yeah. All those emotions, right? And then you have to try to deal with that at the same time that you're dealing with coming off of substances. So, you know, I think we really have to be careful. And like you talked about, loving with these people are coming off and they're having a really hard time. Nobody likes to feel sick. Nobody's nice when they feel sick, right? And that's what's happening when you're saying, just stop, you'll be fine. No, that is, uh, that's just kind of naive. Today, we should know better. We should really should know better. Yeah. And I think we're trying to shift, but um, there is a lot of things that we're yet to do. I do think with, you know, some of the things we've talked about, like we have Narcan and, you know, different projects going on in different states. We also do have some um, really cool things that are starting to come into play, like peer recovery coaching. Um, I work for a foundation that um, offers clinical support as well as peer recovery coaching. And we wow. do it in conjunction, right? Because that's what matters. You have to give people those support to learn to cope with daily life stress. Because the other piece too is I, I really find this idea fascinating. There is a lot of research that shows that somebody can be stunted at the age of their first use. A lot of people don't like that idea, but I think at the very least, you are emotionally stunted at your first use because you didn't learn how to process and cope with all those things that were coming up after that use. Yes, I agree. I see that a lot. Yeah. And I'm glad that things are starting to change. And I think the peer to peer is very powerful because Mm -hmm. 
um, you're with someone that understands you. Yeah. You know, your counselor may not understand you, but your peer has been there. They've walked in your shoes. They know what you feel like and what you need and what will help you. Mm-hmm. I just think that is so powerful. Yeah, I agree. So I'm curious what um, support groups or things were helpful to you. Um, For me... I, like I mentioned, Al-Anon for me personally was not helpful. It helps mm-hmm. a lot of people and I'm not knocking it. Mm-hmm. It's not all about tough love. It's about learning to care for yourself and not allowing the addict or alcoholic in your life to cause you, you know, to be in constant pain and struggling because mm-hmm. it is very hard, especially if someone's stealing from you or lying to you. It's very difficult. But for me, that did not really help. What helped me was a support group I found that's local. And I wish there was more of them. It's It was started by a woman who lost her son 12 years ago to an overdose. Mm-hmm. And when she went to parent um, grief support groups, she was the only one there that had lost her son to an overdose. Nowadays, it would be full of people like that. But then it wasn't. And she was treated differently because of the way her son passed. So she started a group and it's has parents that have lost a child to overdose, or there are a few suicides in there and um, some, and for people who have people that are still struggling. So I started going there because I lost someone else that was like a son to me seven years ago. So I'd been going for seven years when I lost Kevin and those people were my support. I really think you need to find people that understand what it's like, mm-hmm. what you're going through. It's so important. I agree. I think that's huge. I do like that. And I think, you know, if you're a family member, um, reaching out to other family members that have done that, looking at some um, places, like I know Advocates for Recovery, they have a family program. Um Looking at things like that can be a great start. And then also, if you're the one struggling with the substance abuse, looking at um, different groups, like I know AA is not for everybody, neither is NA or CA. There's also Celebrate Recovery, which is a Christian-based program. Dharma Recovery, which is a um, Buddhist-based recovery program. There's also um, All Recovery, which is not a um, specific, like, denominational kind of program. So there are other ways. Um, and then like we talked about that peer recovery support, um, can also be another way than just besides the residential treatment or, um, you know, counseling is a great option, but also sometimes we need more. Your counselor is not available to you like a coach. It's not available to you like a sponsor or a peer. Um, so, I like that you shared that really the importance of finding what works for you and finding a support group in your area is also really huge. Um, While you were saying that, I was curious of just the amount, the statistics of the overdoses that occurred in 2021, since obviously 2022 is not over. um, According to the CDC, we had over in 2021, in the U.S., we had over 100,000 people die of an overdose. And the increase for 2022 is expected to be a 15% increase. So this is a real problem. 
for our listeners, this is not something that we can turn our heads and look at, like, again, like we're talking about that people are not worth the help or they're just people that didn't blossom in society or whatever the stigma and judgment is. It's not valid anymore. Um, And I want to share this too, before we kind of run, like close up and run out of time. If you are struggling or you're feeling like you're unsafe and you need help, always call 911 if it's an emergency. If you need to talk to someone in Colorado, there's a Colorado crisis line. Um, You can text TALK to 38255 or you can call 1-844-493-8255. If you're not in Colorado, um, this amazing... um, just went live from SAMHSA. It is 988. And that is a suicide and crisis line that is everywhere in the United States now. 988 suicide and crisis lifeline. So that is a huge resource that you can get support from someone that is going to be non-judgmental and can help you find the support that you need. Um, And you can chat with people that are trying to make moves like Barbara, who's sharing her story and showing up in her son's honor. Um, Barbara, I feel like I could keep talking to you about this because we're clearly both very passionate about this topic. (laughs) Um, We could probably talk for hours. (laughs) Exactly. Um, but I really valued kind of you sharing your story and, um, I'm extremely grateful for you sharing your story and speaking up against the stigma, um, and coming onto the podcast and sharing with us. So I am so grateful to have you on and thank you so much. You are so welcome. I'm grateful for the opportunity. And I really enjoyed getting to know you and, and talking with you. Thank you. Of course. And for our listeners too, um, <laughs> excuse me, I'm going to put Barbara's information in the episode notes that you can follow her, check out her um, her book about her son and her journey. Um, I'm sure she'd love to hear from you too if you guys have any questions. So feel free to reach out to her. Um, and then subscribe, rate, and review. Let us know what you thought. Let me know if you have any questions. And again, keep that 988 in mind if you are struggling at all. But if it is an emergency, either medical or emotional, please call 911. Thanks so much, Abundance Alchemist podcast listeners, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye, guys. Thank you for hanging out with me on the Abundance Alchemist podcast. Don't forget to head over and grab your free self-love activation meditation at theabundancealchemist.com and hit subscribe here so you don't miss a thing. Until next time, sending you so much love.